Oh, have a seat, Terranovan. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Deuteronomy. That's going to be the fifth book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please just put your hand up. Someone's going to be happy to bring you a Bible, and you can turn there along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, or maybe you do and you just have no idea where it is, just keep this Bible and just use it as you will. Last week was a pretty exciting week at Terranova. Uh, we launched the site up in Saratoga Springs. It's meeting currently as a core group, that, which means we're not really promoting it and talking a lot about it. We realize people will come there and hear about it, but we met at Temple Baptist Church at 5.30, and, and there were, I don't know how to say it, just uh, like an anthill of volunteers who were working up there out of Terra. So thank you guys. You guys are fantastic to make this happen. Uh, I know that um, the pastors put in a lot of pastoral hours, especially um, Daniel and I think the people in the bands who were going up there. And there were about 80 people, which to give some perspective, that's about the size or, or larger than when Tara Troy launched. So this, things are going wonderfully. We want to keep praying as we build together. Keep supporting, keep praying, encourage the people. And if you're on the fence, if you're thinking, I might go there or... Maybe I'll go for a little while, like we talked about before, to have a temporary impact on serving what could last for generations. Continue to pray about that. This is, a, this is a unique opportunity. This has come up now once in six years. So take this opportunity seriously. We're, we're in a sermon series called Ancient Upgrade, and, and we're talking about the dynamic tension of the church, that the church is, is a group of people who are meant to exist in their time, to be a part of their time just like Jesus was in the incarnation, the, the author and finisher, the one that we follow, who stood in his day in Palestine, looking and behaving like that world without sin, but then representing things that were eternally true. So that idea of, of, of upgrading is really about the incarnation. We're, we're touching our times. That idea of ancient is, is about the things that God has always been and always said, that we anchor in something so much more deeply and I can tell you, that the age we live in, the country we live in, people are starved for something that actually roots and anchors. Everything else around us seems to be failing or changing constantly. To be able to speak about God changes all of that. And that's where we are today. This sermon, we're going to talk about theology proper, God. We're going to talk about who he is. We're going to have future sermons that are going to reflect more about God, the, the triune God, the works of God, the covenants of God, specific sermons on Jesus. But here's the roadmap for today. We're going to talk about the nature of God and how people have argued over the years, who is God and how do we know God? How can we interact with this one that we, we don't see with our eyes and touch with our hands? And then we'll talk about what, what is he like? What's God's nature? Everyone we know, with any intimacy, we can say, I know who they are. I know the things they like. I know the ways they behave. I, I know what they want. What is God like? How are those traits shared? And then we're going to talk a little bit about how God is called, how he refers to himself. What are the names that he uses? What are the ways the Bible speaks out of him by analogy? What things does it say he is like? And then we'll talk about a specific name that defined God greater than anything else in the history of human thought or divine revelation. We'll close with asking what I think is the question that we need to be asking throughout the sermon so that this doesn't end up just being uh, an education time. How do we respond to that? 
as we hear about this God who exists, as we hear about who he is and what he's like, as we hear these names that he refers to himself as or has said to other people, you're right when you call me this, how do we respond? Because here's what I know in my life and I believe is probably true for the vast majority of you. There are places where we know God and we would say we know God in some ways and there are places where we're not responding to the fullness of God. There are parts of him when we hear names today, I guarantee you there will be people here who will want to put up a wall and say, I am not ready to hear that name of God. The, the only reasons that you're not ready to hear those things is you're either really afraid and fear is a terrible motivation when you're trying to decide if you're going to follow God or not, or God's adversary is trying to keep you from hearing those names so you don't fully enter into the freedom and love and holiness that that God has laid out in those places. So the challenge for you is throughout this entire sermon to be asking as you learn something of God, as you hear something of God, how am I responding to that? How do I hear that in my soul? Where, where is the turbulence that is quieted by those words? Why am I necessarily defensive when I hear these words? Why is it I celebrate and embrace these? How do I live differently because of who God is? This morning I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, before we get into the Bible. This is a passage, passage that if we were in Judaism, either in ancient biblical times or today, we would be saturated with the hearing of this passage, which is one of the dangers, even for Christians today, to be so saturated with what we hear that we lose the great significance of it. So I'm going to ask you to open your hearts and minds to the Word of God today. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 4. These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you you must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your ancestors promised you. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strengths. Let's pray together. Our Father, wake our hearts up by your presence, by the revelation of who you are. Don't, don't let us even say Father lightly. God, may your spirit just be filling in those words that you call us children we need to learn of you, that you call us yours, you give us an identity in you. God, let, let our fears and lies of the enemy just be broken by the words that are spoken about you, yet let your name be great here and your people hear and reflect that. For your greater name and for the joy of all the people here we ask this, in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We spend a lot of time talking about God. It doesn't matter in this world if people are Christian or non-Christian. It's the most magnetic topic, the most critical foundational piece of information 
the discussion that seems to go on regularly. Some, it's who is God. For some, it's how do we know God. For some, it's why doesn't God seem to be acting in my life the way I would expect him to if he is who he says he is? For a very small minority of people, and it's historically almost an immeasurable percentage, there will be those who will say, well, I'm utterly convinced that there is no God. I won't really be addressing that minority. I'll, I'll be addressing the 99%, if you will. So, so what I want to talk about today is this inescapable question. We all have questions about God. Here's how John Leith, the author of Basic Christian Doctrine, put it. The question of God is inescapable for human beings who ask about love, meaning, reason, and the worthwhileness of their existence. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not just about what you believe when you go to church, why your personal prayer requests are not getting answered, or why they are. He's saying there's something in the nature of being human, in understanding what love is, what purpose is, how any of this has value and makes sense, that draws us most deeply to a foundational cause and definition for all of those things. And our life only gives us that full meaning when we finally understand who God is. The, the, the why these things and why not something else. Why me? How did I come here? How should I live? It, it all comes back to who's God. Otherwise, we're just, we're left in a major subjective dialogue with billions of people, all of us arguing our own truth and trying to convince the other we're right, when we're, if we're honest at the end of the day, we don't have an answer. I saw Moonrise King in this summer, I'm a Wes Anderson fan, and there's a, there's a great scene in line where this kid who's run away from what's essentially the Boy Scouts, it's Khaki Scouts, and his, his girlfriend, and they're very young, and they, have, they run into the dog who was the camp dog, and the dog eventually gets shot, and the boy and girl are standing there, and she asks very seriously, was he a good dog? And in almost the timber of a yogi, the kid says, who's to say? And I feel like that's where we're left. If God is removed from the equation, who's to say? Is my life worthwhile? Who's to say? Am I loving people well? Who's to say? What's the purpose of all of this? Who's to say? And this is why, from time out of mind, people have sought to make sense of this fundamental question. Is there a God, and how do I know? These are the questions of the the arguments for God and, and the revelation of God. How does he present himself? What is he like? Why do I even make the argument that he's there? In the midst of seeking this out and trying to make sense, people have made multiple arguments for God. I'm only going to touch on a few of them that will be up in here in just a sec on a list of the arguments of God. The, the, the ontological argument, it's, it's the big word. The real argument is probably just called an argument for something ideal. And it comes from a guy named Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century who's probably the most famous Christian proponent of this idea that we as human beings can imagine a lot of things. But for the most part, when we seriously imagine things that we anticipate are real, 
Not, not fiction stories, not, not short-lived myths, but things that seem to endure and carry on. Things that we're striving for, but we've never known. To, to be a better athlete, to, to, to be a, a more knowledgeable person. We, we recognize the, these things exist. We celebrate these great ideals. We strive for something on a continuum because we believe there is some greater ideal at the end of that continuum. We, we watched the Olympics this year because we wanted to see who was the greatest. Anselm's argument is you, you can go just about anywhere on the planet and people are saying, pretty sure there's some God in some places, they seem as the chief of all the gods. In some places, they say, we don't know who he is, he'll show someday. In some theistic religions, they'll say very specifically, this is who it is. But it's near universal that people imagine this perfect being. And Anselm will say, if we have the capacity to all think of it and actually strive at times, I'm living my life because I want to make sure I'm living right, and the one who made these things gets to say, it's a good argument that, that he's actually there. The next one is really an argument for design. We walk around the planet where things make sense. Hard to accept a planet full of things in order with some balance to it where, where a silver molecule can be forced in scientific laboratories to become disoriented and it will reorient back to a geographic direction. It seems to have built, been built with, designed to it. It makes sense. This is why in the ancient Near East, David, as he's writing Psalms, says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and my soul knows this well. The, the psalmist will say, look at nature. It constantly speaks about God if you will just look at it honestly. There's a moral argument. The moral argument says, most people whether they say there's a God or not, will have limits on their life. Now we're going to remove the, the few aberrant sociopaths out of that equation. 99.5% of the time, people are going to say, I should do this, I shouldn't do this. Or to someone else, you really shouldn't do this, that's not right. And to even have a moral sense, philosophers and theologians have said that this, this actually argues for God. One of the great arguments that I read was actually by uh, an Islamic guy, and, and he argued more than a millennia ago, there's time. We recognize time. Things move in order. We mark them and we anticipate them. For time to exist and for us to understand that there's sense of time, something beyond time, not something within it, something had to say this is the start and that is the finish. And it became really popular with Muslims, Jews, and Christians to say, that's actually a really interesting argument. And the arguments for God tend to lead the vast majority of people to say, I think there's a God. And it leads them then, if they're thinking and engaged, to the next question. Which God? How do I know him? How do I engage with this being? I look around this world. I look inside my own heart. I see what I imagine. I sense right and wrong. I look at the order and I say, but where are you? What are you like? And what do you want from me? It's a question of revelation, a question of how does he reach into our world? What does it mean that God shows himself? When we look at the Bible, from the very beginning, from the first page of Genesis, 
where it says, in the beginning, God. He's preexistent. He's the antecedent to everything. He, he, he seems to reveal himself not in the way that most people are introduced to the world, that at some point they're not there and then they are, but the revelation of God seems to be this, this permanent, eternal presence. But, but then some very specific things happen. He reveals himself generally through nature. I mentioned those verses. But he also reveals himself through the Bible. For, for the Christian, and I'm not here to make general arguments about is there a God or who is God. We're here to be able to talk about what do we as Christians believe about God? What, where do we find these sources? What does he say? And for the Christian, the Bible becomes a very specific revealed source of who God is. The, the book is designed for a purpose, and I don't want any of us to get the purpose wrong because it happens so many times to all of us as Christians. Sometimes we confuse ourselves that the purpose is knowledge if I can get through this, if I can learn more, I'll be really intelligent about things of God. I'll be able to teach other people. I'll be able to argue with friends. I'll be able to go to other Christians I disagree with and sink their stupid theology once and for all. That, that's not the reason we read the Bible. Some of us read the Bible because we realize, I am so messed up. I hide it quietly. I don't want anyone to know. And maybe this book will help me be better. It'll keep me more moral. It'll change me in some ways. And selfishly, I'll tell you, you're probably right. If you turn your life towards the Bible, even if your only motive is yourself, you probably will be impacted positively, very positively, if you take that seriously. But you'll miss something. You'll miss the main character of that book. Because what we're supposed to find in this book is, is not just how do we live, not just information that I can somehow rely on and use, but we're supposed to see more of God. And one of the things the Bible presents throughout, and it seems to grow and change and give a vast number of them, is to tell us what God is like. Here's a list. And this is one of those places where you need to engage and you need to find the spot where you need to most rely on this place of where God is like. Or a spot that maybe you thought, I, I never considered that God described himself as this. God describes himself as all-knowing. In Psalm 139, he says, as David's speaking about him, you, you hem me in behind me, you go before me, and your hand is upon my head. Ultimately, they'll say, this, this knowledge is just too wonderful for me. Do, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, in my past, the places sometimes that I'm not always that proud of even, the places that I think God wouldn't like if he saw that, he says, you were there. You hem me in behind me. Every piece of who you were, God knows. He says, you go before me. And how this speaks to our anxieties, the what-ifs that plague us, the things we can't see, and I can't see most of what could be there. We have a past, but honestly, we don't always remember that so well. Most of the discussions my wife and I have, the, the intense discussions, the ones some would call arguments, but we don't argue, end up being about how we remembered something that happened. There were whole things that I forget. 1986, 7, 8, they're gone. I just don't remember a few things in my life. Then there's the future. 
I see none of it. We're able to make some predictions and patterns. It'll likely snow in winter. The Red Sox likely won't go to the postseason. But every now and then, you have a mild winter, and the Red Sox win the World Series. But for the most part, you can make guesses about your future. And then we have where we are. How much of that do I really control? And not very much at all. Just get married, become a parent, pastor a church, you start to realize less and less do I actually control. But God says, he knows it all. He's aware. He's got you hemmed in behind. Your past isn't something you suffer through alone. He's got ahead of you. Your future does not have to be an endless source of anxiety. And he has his hand upon you. You're not unwanted and ignored by God's if you've turned to him. Even better, God is all-powerful. He, he says it very plainly. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? With God, nothing is impossible. He, he doesn't change. The prophet Malachi in chapter 3 says very plainly, God says, I don't change. It's not one of those things you have to jump to five verses to understand the theology of. That, that God is forever. Psalm 90 says that before the mountains were, or even the earth was, God is. All the stuff that sometimes worry us, all the things that we would, we would give to own, these were things that had a cause and a source in God before any of these things ever existed. He, he's complete in himself. There's no beginning, no end. He says that he's debtor to no one. He, he's the ruler over all. In Psalm 103.19, he says plainly that he rules over all things. He's transcendent. He's wholly other. He's he's not the the God of pantheism that says, all of this added up is God. You put together me, you, and the wooden frog, and we have God. How disappointing is this? But Genesis presents as before any of the stuff existed, God was, and he made it. He's the maker of all things. It's presented again and again. It's presented in Genesis. It's, It's presented in the great theological work of Romans. And and he creates all of it, including us. So, so how are we to share a likeness with God? How are we like him? Well, Genesis says we're, we're called the image of God. The more you know about God, the more you will understand who you are meant to be. The more you put God out of your life and accept him just in a box somewhere, I believe in him, now it's time to define myself and my life and my marriage and my job, the less you will be what you're supposed to be. You may not notice it all. You may feel very busy trying to live that out. You may have momentary satisfactions that you you really feel, feel good about and boast on. You may have a constant or occasional confusion of what am I supposed to be doing. The more you understand God, the more you will understand as being one in the image who you are supposed to be. And you will pick up these attributes. You'll begin to understand life isn't random. God is love, it says. We're supposed to be people who understand love and goodness. This is why we're told to bear with one another's burdens. This isn't supposed to be an idealistic crowd who says we're all going to be perfect. We're going to be people who annoy each other, grate on each other, are angry at each other, disappoint each other. And it says, out of being like God, out of reflecting love and goodness that comes from him, because you can't do it on your own. You'll, you'll do things like avoid conflict and pretend things aren't there. That's not what being loving is talking about. Being loving is talking about being present in that difficult life 
and still being willing to give to move that person forward. The truth of God gets reflected in people. We're supposed to be seekers and speakers of truth. It it comes out in all that we do. We're supposed to be people who learn mercy because we've received mercy. The scriptures say we become imitators of God. People are natural imitators. Happens from the time we're little. Get the little infant, and you start making different faces to the baby. You start giving the big smile, and after a while, what's the infant do? Gives the big smile. They, they mimic the faces. They see it's built into us from the beginning. That kid gets a little bit older. He's playing t-ball, and he has eye black for t-ball. He does not need the eye black, but he has watched baseball players, and he has thought, I want to be like them. You and me. We have people that we imitate, I promise you. If you search through your life, the things you wear, the things you like, some of the things you say, you probably picked them up from somewhere. The scriptural call on seeing God revealed is that we become imitators of him as beloved children. What he does, we seek to do. How he is, we seek to do. The the definitions of ourselves are not meant to be informed by culture. I believe strongly Christians are to be aware of their culture, engage in their culture, make an impact on their culture. I think Christians are supposed to be in dialogue with their culture. I think Christians are supposed to vote, all those things. But our primary source of imitation, what's shaping us, what's discipling us, is the person of God revealed. And when I'm at points where I'm not seeing that a lot, I may not know it about myself, but I'm confident I'm being shaped by something or someone else and no longer by God. God shaped shares these attributes. He reveals himself in order to transform us. Information does not equal transformation. You can read the books, you can get the list, it's not going to change you. Dedication does not equal transformation. You can say to yourself, I'm going to change, I'm going to fix these things, I know what they are, I'm going to white-knuckle them. You will only find them more and more present and annoying in your life. Revelation equals transformation. When you see God and become like him, when you change because of his presence, that's how he ends up sharing those attributes. Next piece I want to talk about on who God is has has to do with names. The, the, The names that we give to things really are very telling sometimes. We can find ourselves calling people or things by nicknames because of some association with them. For example, New York City is called the Big Apple. Anyone know why it's called the Big Apple? Because when jazz musicians were playing, to get a gig was to be called an apple. I don't know if it was because it was sustenance or food, or if it was just a sweet thing, but that's what they call it. Got an apple. And to get the Big Apple meant you had a gig in New York City. And so it became a nickname of value about how important that city was. Truckers, when they talk about where they're going, will call San Francisco Shaky Town because of the numbers of earthquakes that happened there, and they reduced it to a nickname that tells us something about it. Moses, we know his story. He's saved in a miraculous way. God has said the people of Israel are in a place they're not meant to be. Their wealth has been taken. Their freedom has been taken. They're being abused by cruel slave masters to build a glorious world for them that will not survive the test of time. That's where Israel is. Sometimes it sounds like the church, but that's where Israel is. And a child is born who will be the deliverer. 
And Pharaoh finds out about it and tries to kill all the Hebrew children. It's so important to remember, whenever good is moving fast, evil is moving on a parallel track right next to it. But Moses lives. He's raised in Pharaoh's household. And eventually he's called on by God to become that deliverer. He's now living out in the wilderness. He's on the run because he could no longer take the injustice that was happening to his people. And he kills an Egyptian who was beating on a Hebrew slave. And then when he hears God, when God is revealed, and your life will be changed when God is revealed, this is what he asked God in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? It's the name. It's not that I saw God, it's not that there was a burning bush, it's how do I call you? It's important that I be able to to understand and mark you and give you something that I can communicate to these people. And God's answer is, tell them I am has sent you. When I was in seminary, last classes of the semester, for a year that would end, everyone in the class was going to graduate. The prof was a guy who was a genius. He had worked as a moral and ethical consultant on the human genome mapping project. Not a dummy. And I'm taking this class, and he says to us right away, if this is your last semester here, you automatically get the A. But I want you to actually listen and learn. I don't want you to be trying to get a grade. And early on in the class, he said to us, I want you to consider all the things you've learned as a Christian, whether it's been in kids' classes, Sunday school, churches, Bible colleges, here at seminary, and now I want you to remove everything you know about God by way of analogy. When he's spoken to you in very human terms and said he's like a strong right arm, when he said he's like an earthly king, when he he said he's like a father, remove it all. And then I want you to write for me what you know. And you've never seen so many stunned seminarians looking forward to graduating, realizing how simple we are in trying to understand this God. And what he says to Moses' name is simply beingness. I am. The foundation, the arguments you make about where did things come from, how should things be modeled, I am. It's the best name he can give is, is beingness, the one who in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So by analogy, here, here are so many of the names that God has said about himself, and I, I just want you prayerfully to hear these. He's called himself a groom or a husbandman, the one waiting to get married, that he has set his affection upon his beloved, and he will be faithful to follow through. He's called himself a husband, the one who will provide for, care for, and protect his bride. He's called himself a judge, the one who will look at you and me and say, this is right, this is wrong, and judge in the ancient Near East also meant this is how I will deliver you from where you are. He's called a king, and to those who are his people, we realize I'm not an independent operative anymore, no matter how much I try to convince myself of that reality, that I'm just becoming a better, smarter, stronger, independent operative. He says, no, I'm your king. He's called a deliverer. Some of us are in desperate straits even now. We feel like there is absolutely no solution we can come up with. We've thought it through ourselves, like that was the greatest resource. We've went to friends, we've been to doctors, we've been to past. 
we find nothing but him. He's called the day star that is rising brighter and brighter until the morning comes. He's called a warrior, one who will fight and contend, sometimes with us, sometimes to protect us. He's called a shepherd, the one who would look after this entire group, not just the individual, and find places of safety. He's called a potter, one who shapes what he's imagined in his mind, and he says that concerning his people. I'm actually designing and making you. So many times we believe the lies of what someone else has said to us that we are, not how God has made us. He's called a lamb, gentle and approachable. He's called a lion, fearsome and awesome. And he's called a rock, base everything else on that. And at his core, he's called something that we can only imagine by the absence of it in our life and the small blitz of presence. He's called holy. And those who are nearest to them, the angels who surround his throne, says constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hebrew poetry is a funny thing. It doesn't rhyme, which for a lot of people, it's not poetry anymore, but it doesn't rhyme. It, it does other things, though, that let people know in that language it's poetry, and it repeats things. And if it says something twice, it's trying to say emphatically, this is true. This is very much this. It's a superlative of this quality. Hebrew poetry really doesn't say things three times. It, it would be, how would you say, beyond the superlative? That, that's how God's holiness is described by the angels nearest him. Holy, holy, holy. So here's my question for you. The people nearest to you, if they described you, you're not there to be defensive, you're not there to cut them off. And they're being really honest. I mean, they're being 4 a.m. honest. They're just saying, this is who this person is, the, the best and the worst. What are the things about you that end up getting repeated? What things get repeated twice about you? Are they things that line up with the reflection of this God so that our name begins to meet his name? Because for anyone who names Jesus as their Savior, we are called Christian. Little Christ, the ones who are supposed to be living out that image that's provided. The, the most specific name that God has ever given to describe himself. Nature's broad revelation. The Bible is meant to point us to him. But the most specific name is Jesus. It's the, it's the precise revelation of God described in an analogy we understand best, the analogy of a standing, living, human, breathing person. But we don't have to unpack what it might mean that God says he's a king. We can see Jesus. We can hear him. The disciples will say when they write the scriptures, we handled, we touched the word of God. We, we understood who it is. That, that's why in John 1, 8, it says that, that no one has seen the Father, but the only begotten Son has exegeted, has declared him. So when you're learning preaching in seminary, they, they tell you what exegetical preaching is. It means you, you take a section of scripture and you just preach straight through that section. You explain what's going on there. It's the same word the Bible uses about Jesus that he exegetes, he explains the Father. He takes everything that God is by his person, by his power, by analogy, and says, here, now you can see it in human form, God with you. Here are some of the verses about Jesus that just that lay that out so plainly. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the name of God, to the glory of God the Father. If you understand one thing about the revelation of God from the Bible, it's this. Jesus is God. The Bible is not vague on this. He's not presented as being someone who seemed really special and may have had prophetic abilities. He's not presented only as a wise instructor. Clearly, he's laid out as God, the given name of the Lord, the one that they would have called God by in the Old Testament scriptures, is now laid on Jesus when he's fully revealed as the one who humbled himself from heaven, came to be on earth, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and now will be the one that each person turns to and bows and says that that's the Lord, whether they know him now or not. He showed himself in his life to have the powers that God claimed to have. Mark 2.5, he forgives sin. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He, he promised to forgive the sins of those who came to him, that, that he would be making people holy. He would be making them, making us like God. And this is those moments where we can read and understand and say, hey, that's great. He told that guy he forgave sin. Man, those Pharisees were upset over that. Where we're supposed to be in this is, where are my sins? If I'm standing front of this one who I call Lord, who I realize is God, who all the attributes of God that I've ever read, all the creation I've rather read, all the power I've ever read, the, the wrath of the warrior king, the, the shepherd, the potter, the lamb, the lion, it's Jesus. And he can forgive sin. Why do we wait? Why do we wait? Do we not believe? Do we not have the faith that Jesus can forgive our sins? when he, he's recorded as doing, when the scriptures say, if you confess your sins to him, if you do that, he's faithful to forgive those sins. And he's justified in doing it because he paid the price already for every sin. The, the one you hide maybe from your past. The one now that you've just become deeper engaged in than you ever thought you would be and you feel like there's no way out. Jesus forgives sins. It's part of what he has determined as being God that he does. It's in his nature, and he wants to do that for you. Sometimes it's, it's as though we don't fully understand, even as clearly as his enemies did, who he is. John 10, 30 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not good for a work, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. His enemies understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Sometimes by our actions, I'm not sure I really understand and appreciate. This is not just the Savior from sin's past. This is not just the one who someday will return and someday sort out this mess. This is the one who's called my shepherd now. He'll forgive my sins now. Don't, don't hesitate anymore. There are places that you need to come to. This is the time to do that. Don't, don't, don't remain waiting. Matthew 26, 63 through 65. 
Jesus remains silent. He's arguing with the high priests and the scribes and Pharisees. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. His enemies understood it plainly. His disciples wrote about it. Jesus said it. When he was pressed specifically for the question, are you saying this about yourself? Are you saying that God has entered space and time, that the world has changed that much? He says, you've said it rightly. And they pick up stones to to try to kill him. The the greatest statement of who Christ is and how he responds that I've ever seen in the Bible, St. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'm going to read through this passage and try to break it up for us a little bit. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Several things that we've seen about God that it says so plainly about Jesus and how we're to respond. He's clearly the invisible image of God. Paul leads with that, but then he says, He's the creator. All things he created, they were made by him and for him. Everything that you've read in Genesis, you have to substitute and understand Jesus, the Father, Son, Spirit. He's making all things. And it says they were made for him. So many times I find myself, and maybe you'll identify with this, subtly deluded into believing it's actually about me millennia that have gone before me, who knows how much time to go ahead of me, billions of people on the earth, and I still think it's about Ed Marcel some days. Where this passage says he he made all things and they were all made for him so that he might be preeminent. That simply means first. If you really want to be engaging Jesus as he's presented, as God, as Lord, as preeminent, it, it means he's first. He's first in your comparative lifestyle. You're not meant to look at the other guy or the woman and think, why are they ahead of me? Why are they making more money? Why do they have the job that I want to have? Why do they have these gifts? I want that IQ. I want that house. Jesus isn't first anymore. You're not living with him as preeminent. To live with him as preeminent, your life becomes consumed, not with these bitter questions of lack of faith, but Lord, help me to see more of you, reveal more of yourself, that I can be more like you. Lord, how come I complain when I don't see that on you? You suffered silently the injustice of a fake trial and a crucifixion. Teach me to make you first and not to compare with others. It means first in serving. It means you're not doing something for someone when it's really convenient, when it didn't cost you anything. It means you're not just doing things for the people that you like. While we were at enmity, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. He needs to be first in your serving. Your serving can't be about how much you get a kick out of serving. It felt really good that I I helped the people with no eyeballs today. 
It might. But to be able to say, following Jesus, I'm actually trying in my day to live in a way that reflects him out of obedience to him. And that's right. That, That actually feels better. It's first in motives. Why do you do what you do? Are you working hard because you just want a promotion, more money, or make your boss happy? Are you working hard because Jesus is preeminent? He's first, I'm his, I have to behave differently to honor him. Hey, if the boss notices it, wonderful, but I'm here to serve Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who's represented not not just as creator, not just as first, but as redeemer. That he might reconcile to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, some people will go off the reservation, ignore the whole of the Bible for one passage, and say, oh, he reconciled all things, so no one's going to hell, everything's going to be fine. There are 18, 20, 30 other passages you'd have to line up to say, oops, I didn't get that, because Jesus is still the one who says, there are going to be those who are cast into outer darkness where the worm dieth not. He seems to be speaking specifically of and believing in a literal place of distance from God that people have earned in and of themselves. But here he says he's, he's made peace. The peace is out there. It's there for people who will come and respond to him. And then he speaks to those who have responded to him, to the church. Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Behold, I'm with you even to the end of the day, age. First, There's a picture of God fully as the triune God, and we're going to talk more about that and the Holy Spirit in another sermon. But but what he says to the church is, I now have a place for you. God reveals, and we are informed. So God revealed as Jesus, the sacrificed Savior, has made these people obedient to Jesus, has redefined their mission. They look to him, they follow him, and he says, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to have jobs, you're going to have families, but your main purpose in life is to be and to make disciples of all the nations. God reveals us and gives us this identity. And as we turn to him, we're, we're transformed. We, we become something different by that revelation. We're, we're responding, in a sense, to God's revelation, and we become sanctified, we become more holy. And then we reflect that. We go into all the world and we serve these people, Discipleship looks like this. God reveals himself to us. It's always initiated by God. We can try our best to make the important intentional decisions where we see God, we practice the disciplines, we hang out with other Christians, we read our Bible, we go to church. All those things are great, but God initiates and reveals. We then embrace or reject those things. When we embrace those things, we become more like him. Our heart, our mind, our actions, our head, heart, hands all changed. And then we reflect them. We, we go out to our family, to the world around us, to our workplace, and we reflect those things. Just, just as a real quick aside, I, I see this a lot, so I just want to say it as a, as a pastor, and, you know, as, as someone who's trying to be a friend to you. Don't miss that the reflection and ministry of God doesn't happen in your household. I see so many times Christians talk about serving and ministering, and they're, they're only talking about, I'm going to serve these people, these people who are in need, these people who don't have Bibles, I'm going to serve this ministry. And they're very different with their families. They don't realize that you're called to be a Christian in your household. You're called to make disciples of those people. Serve and sacrifice there as well. The the band's going to come up and and we're going to celebrate a time of communion, recognizing that this God who came to earth 
who left glory, who spoke to us, who said, I am your king, also became the sacrificial lamb for us. When he came to be baptized, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Part of coming and responding to Jesus is recognizing if he's a savior, then I am in need of a savior. If he's, in, if he's the Lord, I am a rebel in need of peace with this king. And if he's the head of a body, I need to be in concert with his headship. There'll be people up here holding broken matzahs, symbolizing the broken body of our Lord, given for all who are called to come to be saved by him, to no longer know themselves just as sinners, but an identity in him that says, you're called saint, you're called beloved, you're accepted. And people holding wine and grape juice, symbolizing his blood that was poured out for you to dip it into. There'll be plenty of time. The band will play two songs. You have time to reflect. Maybe something God spoke to you today, maybe something you walked in here with. But take the time to pray and then come and receive that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want our hearts and minds and hands awakened by the things we see of you. God, we could talk about the knowledge of you. The earth could be filled with it. We could, we could read every book on theology, attend conferences and church sermons all day long. But God, without you working in us, where we see you and experience you, where our hearts are made alive, old motives fall away and we, we don't even look to them again. We, we seem like we're men who were blind and now see. Oh God, speak to us in this way. Call us to yourself. Transform us into people who respond upward to you in worship, inward in turning from our sin, and outward in serving the one who is the author and finisher of all these things, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.